the automated podcast. So welcome to the 10th episode of Automated. This, of course, is the podcast exploring the impact of technology on jobs. And my name is Mark Verbenkov. So right after publishing last week's episode, I came across another interesting application for IoT, which has been getting a little bit of publicity over the last week. So the Ocean Cleanup Project is tackling one of the most, uh, I think, visually apparent environmental issues of today, uh, which is the plastic waste pollution uh, across the Earth's oceans. So according to this project, some uh, 1,000 rivers give off about 80% of all the ocean's new plastic waste. So this project has developed something called an interceptor, which is an automated barge that collects all the floating plastic from a river. So the relevant aspect here is that it has sensors on it that allows its uh, levels of waste to be checked remotely. And I think that even more impressively is that once the bins are full, a notification can actually be automatically sent to the operators and uh, they can come in and remove and replace the bins. So though this is a uh, bandage solution and doesn't really get to the root of the problem of actual plastic waste creation, I think it's an interesting and ambitious project and has a really good example of IoT in action. So for anybody that's interested, the link is in the show notes if you want to see their quick two-minute introduction video, as well as a couple uh, current pilots that they have, uh, one being in Malaysia. But let's move on to today's topic, which looks at further automating agriculture. So as mentioned in previous episodes, the three areas of work that humans have predominantly moved through across history are, of course, agriculture, then manufacturing, then a shift into services. And I think that today it's really easy to see the start of a real move into the fourth area, uh, information services sector, while the previous sectors are undergoing greater and faster degrees of automation. So as mentioned in the previous robotics episodes, uh, robots have been highly utilized in industrial manufacturing, really to automate many of the processes there. And I also mentioned that the use of drones and IoT really support automating parts of agricultural work. But I think that vertical farming, the focus of today's episode, really takes us to another level. So vertical farming was actually one of the first technologies that I myself stumbled across in my journey to learn about automation. So back in my mid-20s, I was accepted into an international work program and went to work and live in Cuba for about eight months with three other Canadians, where we tried to support a local community in Guantanamo City on sustainable development practices. So no, that's not the US military base, but the nearby city where the base itself gets its name. Although we did see the base from a distance on a road trip one weekend. So part of the preparation for this program was a three-month kind of intensive training period where we learned about uh, many things, such as uh, dealing with uh, working overseas, but also sustainable practices in agriculture and energy, amongst uh, a number of other things. But it was here that I first came across the concept of vertical farming. And though not relevant for the work that we had to do, I think the idea really stuck with me as a, a very interesting one. However, the complete failure of the project, as well as the absolute insanity of the communist system, was actually one of my turning points for being way more interested in automation and partial disillusionment of overseas aid, as well as environmental work, which I had already been doing for a couple of years. So though I know many of you will be asking if I don't say anything about the topic of Cuba, I think I can take a couple of minutes to have a quick off-topic tangent on the subject. 
So as I was over there for just over eight months, I of course have hundreds, if not thousands of small examples and stories from my time in Cuba. But I'll just uh, touch on a couple small ones here for the podcast. So uh, one of the first things that I noticed was that most, if not all, store shelves in all the cities that I visited were very near to being empty or at least had very large spaces between all the different products. Um, Also, one of the most frustrating things was the dial-up internet. Not high-speed, but just normal dial-up internet cost about five U.S. dollars per hour. And the entire city of Guantanamo itself actually ran out of eggs for a few days. Um, There was also, this is really interesting, there was zero product advertisements across the entire country. So you couldn't see them anywhere. But you did have uh, revolutionary propaganda on any and all billboards. And even some of this propaganda covered entire building walls. So we were also hearing that our actions were being watched and reported on by government agents, which was apparently a normal thing to happen for anybody coming to work in Cuba for any length of time. However, I don't think any of us ever saw one of these uh, so-called government agents. But we did have a number of occasions where people didn't want to speak to us for fear of getting long prison sentences. But I think more than anything, the bureaucratic nightmare that we had to deal with was absolutely infuriating. So from having to wait almost two months to get a small piece of paper that would allow us to work in the south where the project was, to having to request permission to leave the city for any trip, to me personally talking to over 10 local government offices to get both permission, resources, as well as labor requests to open up a very small point of sale for the local community that we were supporting so that they could sell their goods legally as they were actually selling their uh, goods illegally on the black market and were in constant fear of long prison sentences if they were caught doing this. So this point of sale or punto de venta was eventually constructed. It was a very small wooden structure, but it was actually disassembled the very next day due to the decision of one local bureaucrat for reasons still not fully known. So though, of course, our time in Cuba wasn't all bad, um, I could easily devote an entire podcast just talking about Cuba if I wanted to, which I absolutely do not. But I think to get back on point, I am quite happy to revisit the topic of vertical farms, which came near the start of my interest in automation, especially as it comes with a little bit of controversy. But before we dive into that, why don't we look at a little bit of context, history, and look at exactly what this technology is. So over the past 40 years, the world has actually lost a third of its arable land. And it's estimated that by 2050, there will be an extra 2 billion people on Earth. And uh, mass urbanization estimates put uh, 2.5 billion new people moving to urban areas. Uh, That's equivalent to some 68% of all humans by 2050 living in cities and the associated urban areas. So together, just these two trends lead to really great challenges when it comes to food security as well as access. And it is argued that uh, vertical farming can be an answer to that challenge. So some 20 years ago, back in 1999, Dickerson Depomier, a professor of environmental health sciences at Columbus University, challenged his class with both a thought and practical experiment to figure out how to feed the entire population of Manhattan, some 2 million people, using only 5 hectares of rooftop gardens. So the class actually calculated that rooftop gardening methods could only feed some 2% of the population, and unsatisfied with the results, 
he made an off-the-cuff suggestion of growing plants indoors, vertically. So by 2001, the first outline of a vertical farm was actually introduced. But what exactly is vertical farming? So rather than the traditional farming done in fields or greenhouses, uh, vertical farming produces food in stacked layers, typically inside of a building like a shipping container or a skyscraper or even repurposed warehouse. So the goal here is to generate more food per square meter as compared to traditional agricultural practices with even less inputs. So to do this, the environment is typically controlled. This includes uh, light, temperature, humidity, soil, etc. And certain technologies are used to increase the efficiencies, uh, such as uh, rotating plant beds with a single UV light in the middle, or even different soil configurations like hydroponic, which means uh, no soil but a mineral nutrient solution, which is diluted in water, is used instead, or aeroponic, which instead of water, an air or even mist medium is used. So vertical farming also apparently uses 70 to 95% less water than traditional agricultural practices. And according to an independent estimate, a 30-story building with an area of five acres can potentially produce an equivalent of 2,400 acres of conventional horizontal farming. So quite a few projects actually lifted off since the 1999 class challenge. But in 2014, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, home of many people's favorite paper company, Dunder Mifflin, uh, a single-story, uh, 3.25-hectare vertical farm implemented a series of racks which had 17 million plants that could be monitored from a smartphone. So a big part of the process also included the recycling of water, and it actually led to 98% less water used per item or per plant than traditional uh, agricultural methods. So though this was the largest vertical farm back in 2014, uh, newer larger ones have come out since then and currently the largest one is run by something called Aero Farms in New Jersey and it actually produces two million pounds of lettuce every single year. So as you can see the idea and practice of vertical farming is growing and even uh, Kimball Musk this is Elon Musk's brother, is actually working on a form of vertical farming, which is retrofitting shipping crates in New York. So there are hundreds of other examples of vertical farms across the world, from Europe, parts of the Middle East, Canada, China, and also Japan, which actually experienced quite a large boom in vertical farming ever since the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster, created a real fear of contaminated food across the entire country, forcing the retrofitting of buildings as well as warehouses for the express use of vertical farms. So a long list of the farms found across the world and descriptions of them can be found in the show notes in case you're interested. So both the examples that I briefly discussed as well as those that can be found in the show notes are really examples that still require a lot of human labor in order to perform most of the farming tasks. However, if we move maybe a little bit more towards the relevancy of this podcast, uh, one company called Iron Ox takes the growth cycle to the next level by redesigning the entire process around automated solutions and uses a robot called Angus to move and place the plants in necessary spots for the uh, growing process to occur. And another company called Bowery Farming uses a combination of conveyor belts, sensors, as well as monitoring software to automate a majority of the growing cycle itself. However, another company called Sanabio has recently produced a platform called Uplift that has automated the entire growing process from seeding 
germination, uh, plant transportation, harvesting, all the way to packaging. So I think that we can really see that this move towards full automation, in vertical farming at least, is really on its way. So as I mentioned at the start of this episode, this specific technology has been surrounded by a bit of controversy. So most notably, the taste is one of the main points. So a number of years ago, I actually went to an urban farm outside of Montreal that practiced a few of the vertical farming practices. And they had a guided tour showing most of their operation. And I went with a friend, actually one of the other Canadians that I went down to Cuba with, and he very clearly supported uh, traditional agricultural practices. And even refused to take one of the free tomato seedlings that they gave out at the end of the tour, saying that the flavor of plants not grown in soil had a far inferior flavor. Now, my palate isn't as refined as this, but it is something that I've heard and read a number of times before, that food really tastes better if grown in the ground. But I kind of want to know what you think. Uh, Have you even had any food that comes from a vertical farm? And if you have, do you think that there's any difference? So moving on to the second point of controversy, we can see that this is a question of nutrient content. However, I was unable to find any conclusive papers showing either way, as it seems to be a little bit mixed with some plants having higher levels and others having lower. So if you know, or can at least point me to a definitive example, please let me know. Um, So one of the best cases for vertical farming is actually that weather isn't an issue for crops as they can be grown year round as well as there's no need for any chemicals or pesticides or herbicides which means that the plants are actually inherently organic though some do doubt whether the label can actually be applied here. So one of the main points against vertical farming is actually the price tag as electricity as well as labor expenses often make it quite challenging to run a financially feasible business. So really to support this idea, uh, many of the examples that I stated earlier are actually startups with a lot of seed funding and commercially viable examples are actually few and far between, even if you account for the proximity to the city, which actually greatly cuts down on transportation costs. Uh, Also, any power failures could really be catastrophic, especially if our food system becomes too dependent on vertical farming. So one of the stronger arguments actually deals with the fact that we already waste uh, a crazy amount, something like a third of all food produced, some 1.3 billion tons per year. So building expensive vertical farms has been argued as really the wrong path and we should be rather focusing on dealing with reducing the waste itself. And finally, a really great point that segues into the impact of jobs is that the pollination of the plants is seen as a really massive problem. So as pollination is practically impossible within such controlled and cramped environments, this might need to be done by hand as it is done already in apple and pear orchards in southwest China, where all wild bees were killed off due to uh, excessive pesticide uses. This is one of the main contributing factors to colony collapse disorder across the world uh, that's occurring today. So like most of the other technologies that we've discussed in the podcast, vertical farming has a really high potential to eradicate almost all jobs associated with certain forms of agriculture. However, it might also lead to a massive growth in time-consuming, low-skill tasks through, as I mentioned before, manual pollination. But apart from this, vertical farming follows the standard theme of requiring both data experts as well as higher IT skills to deal with the automated systems where none were really required beforehand in agriculture. 
But overall, for vertical farming, the vision and certainly the move that is being experienced right now is that large parts of plant agriculture will be completely automated in the future. The only interaction we would need to take would be to pick up the produce when it is finally ready, if it is not delivered by a drone, of course. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And as always, please leave a like or a review or a comment uh, on whichever platform you're using to listen to podcasts. And for next week, we'll be looking at 3D printing. Thanks again. The Automated Podcast.